join me in prayer? Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the precious blood of Jesus Christ. Fathers, we come to this time in our service where we open up your word, Father. Our prayer is the same prayer that Jesus had for his disciples, that your spirit would lead them into truth. And he said that your word is truth. So, Father, by your Holy Spirit's power speaking into our lives today, Father, would you speak the truth of your word into us. Father, expose any unrighteousness. Father, provide for us out of your grace the humility to repent. Father, encourage us in our walk with you. Father, Lead us into righteousness for your name's sake. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you have your copy of God's Word, I hope that you do. I invite you to open up to Galatians chapter 5, verse 19 through 24. Galatians chapter nine, uh, 5, verses 19 through 24. I don't know how many of you have a garden. It's probably flooded uh, if you do. Uh, but if you do have a garden, I, I wouldn't have had to have been present whenever you planted your garden, to know what you planted, right? All I have to do is look at the fruit above the ground, and I would know what was under the surface, what kind of seeds you put under the surface. So if I see squash, then I know that you planted squash seeds. If I see okra, then I know that you planted okra seeds. If all I see is weeds in your garden, then I'm going to assume that you didn't plant anything, okay? I'm just going to assume that you know how to grow a garden, and so you just didn't plant anything, and that's why uh, there are no fruit visible above the ground. But likewise, our lifestyle gives evidence of what lies within us. Our lifestyles gives evidence of what lies within us. If the Spirit of God has been planted in us, then our lives will be producing fruit in keeping with the Spirit, will be producing godliness. We will look different than the world if the Spirit is living inside of us. So as we get into this passage, I just want to give you our main thought for today, and that's this. Walking by the Spirit produces Christ-honoring fruit in our lives, which fosters healthy relationships among believers. Let me say that one more time. Walking by the Spirit produces Christ-honoring fruit in our lives, which fosters healthy relationships among believers. Now, if you remember where we're at in our uh, walk through this book of this letter of Galatians, Paul is writing this letter primarily to warn against legalism. That's the belief that the way to be accepted by God is by following a list of rules. And he warns against legalism in this letter by explaining that we are set free From sin, not by doing a bunch of good things, but by God's grace through our faith in Jesus. But now, Paul, in this part of the letter, is warning not against legalism, but against what's called libertinism. And that's the belief that salvation is simply a free ride to heaven that doesn't have any effect or any impact on my day-to-day life. In other words, libertinism views my liberty from sin as a liberty to sin. 
I'm free from my sin. I'm, I, I'm lived, I've been liberated from my sin, so now I have the liberty to continue living a life of sin. Well, that's just as wrong as legalism. Both are out of step with the truth of the gospel. Now, if you recall, back in verses 13 through 15 of chapter 5, Paul called us to use our freedom as an opportunity to lovingly serve one another. That we're to live in love in the community of believers that God has given us in the church. But that presented us with a question. How do we do that? Because that's hard. That's that's hard to do, to to love one another. And so in verses 16 through 18, he he told us that in the gospel community, in, in the church, the Spirit induces victorious living. Because of the Spirit that He's given us, we have the power to choose to love one another rather than the opposite, to bite and devour one another. And so we have this power within us, but then that presents us with another question. What exactly does this victorious living look like? What does it look like in my life when the Spirit of God is overcoming the desires of the flesh? What does that look like on the outside, what kind of fruit is produced when the Spirit has been implanted inside of us? And so today in this passage, we want to see that in the gospel community, the Spirit induces fruitful living. The Spirit induces fruitful living. What does it look like when the Spirit is overcoming the desires of our flesh? Well, Paul's going to begin by telling us what it doesn't look like, and then he's going to tell us what it does look like. So if you will, follow along with me in verses 19 through 24, Galatians chapter 5. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Notice with me three things this morning that happen when we walk by the Spirit. Notice three things that happen when we walk by the Spirit. The first is this. Walking by the Spirit destroys sin in you. Walking by the Spirit destroys sin in you. Remember the previous three verses where Paul said that there's a battle going on inside of us against the desires of our flesh and the desires of the Spirit, but the Spirit is more powerful than the desires of our flesh, so if we'll walk by the Spirit, the Spirit will win. But anytime there's a battle, something is being destroyed. And when the Spirit is at war against our flesh, and we're walking by the Spirit, and the Spirit is winning, the thing that is being destroyed inside of us is our sin. An important step in gardening, in your garden producing fruit, is continually getting rid of all the weeds. There has to be something that's uprooted in order for the fruit to be produced. In our lives, the thing that must be uprooted is sin. And Paul gives us a list here of some examples of what life looks like for someone who is not walking by the Spirit, but is instead indulging the desires of the flesh. These works of the flesh, he says, are evident. 
This is the obvious lifestyle of someone who is not living under the control of the Spirit. And I want us to look at this. It's a list of 15 things that he gives here. And I want us to unpack some of these words so we can understand a little bit better what the Holy Spirit is trying to get rid of in our lives. And if we're walking by the Spirit, what he will be getting rid of in our lives. To help us, because it's a long list, 15, 15 things here. Also, look, think about it in four different categories, okay? So four categories, and that will help us walk through. And all of these categories, I'm going to call them some form of perversion. A perversion is simply a twisting of something, making it not what it's supposed to be. And, and these are perversions of God's created order. God has created the world in a certain way, and then we in our sin twist it and pervert the good things that God has given us. We pervert the world that God has given us. So the first category that, that I want to kind of use to help us walk through these, this list is the category of the perversion of sex. Perversion of God's design for sex. There's three words here that Paul uses, three words, and they are sexual immorality, impurity, and sensuality. Sexual, sexual immorality, impurity, and sensuality. And these three words fall under this perversion of sex. Sexual immorality includes all types of behavior that's not in keeping with God's design. Lust, pornography, any kind of sex outside of marriage, which includes premarital sex or adultery, incest, homosexuality, all of these things are a perversion of God's good design for the physical relationship that is supposed to only take place in the context of a marriage between a man and a woman. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 3, Paul writes, For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual morality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. The second word, impurity. And this term really refers to any kind of living that would be considered unclean when compared to God's holiness. But because of the context in which it is, it's probably referring to the uncleanness that is associated with sexual immorality since it follows that word in this list. Sexual morality, impurity, the third word in this category of a perversion of sex is sensuality or some translations use the word debauchery. And this is literally to throw off restraint, to act without care for yourself or others, to live only with a concern to what will please you most in the moment. It's a very feeling-oriented way of making choices. What feels good in this moment is what I will do, and it doesn't matter the impact that it has on anyone else. Barclay had this definition of the word sensuality here in this passage. is the love of sin so reckless and so audacious that a man has ceased to care what God or man thinks of his actions. We have a great example of this in the Old Testament, the book of Jeremiah. God is speaking of the sin of the people in Jerusalem. And he says this in Jeremiah chapter 6, verse 15. Were they ashamed when they committed abomination? No, they were not at all ashamed. They did not know how to blush. Therefore, they shall fall among those who fall. At the time that I punish them, they shall be overthrown. It's a throwing off of all care and living wildly however I want to live. And here, because, again, the context, because it follows the sexual morality and impurity, it's probably referring to reckless living in regards to a sexually immoral lifestyle. So that first category of sin that God is destroying inside of us the perversion of sex. The second category is the perversion of worship. Perversion of worship. There's two words that are used here. 
that I would put under this category of a perversion of worship. They're the words idolatry and the words sorcery. Idolatry and sorcery. Now, idolatry is simply any substitute for God in our lives. Any substitute for God in our lives. And this could be associated with the previous category of sexual morality, especially because in this day and time when Paul wrote it, sexual morality was often a part of worshiping idols, idolatry. They went together. But really, idolatry is associated with any sin that we commit. Every time you commit a sin, I don't care what it is, we are also at the same time committing the sin of idolatry. For instance, think about this. If God says, don't cheat on your test, or don't cheat on your taxes, or don't cheat on your spouse, and we say, I know what God says, but I'm not going to submit to his authority. I'm going to do whatever I want to do. What I have just done in that moment is not only have I cheated in whatever way, but I've also placed myself on the throne of my life. I have pushed God aside off the throne of my life, and now I am submitting to myself, which means I am my own God at that point, which means I'm committing idolatry. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 5 is interesting. It says this, For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is, an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Notice in that passage that idolatry is not listed as another sin. It's listed as another description of someone who is covetous. So if we are sinning, whatever that sin is, we are also committing the sin of idolatry. And then that second word in this category, it's the fifth word in, the, in this list, is the word sorcery or witchcraft. Literally, um, in the Greek, it's the word pharmakia, which is where we get the word pharmacy from, right? So in classical Greek, this word, it referred to a drug. And just like today, back then, there were good drugs. They were used for medicinal purposes. But then there were bad drugs that were used to poison the body. Then, in the New Testament time period, this word became associated with practices of the occult, with witchcraft-type happenings and sorcery or summoning of the dead-type practices. It's the same word that's used in the Greek translation of the Old Testament referred to the, the servants of Pharaoh who tried to imitate the plagues that God was sending through Moses. He called his, Pharaoh called his people together and he said, he said there were sorcerers. He said, now you try to imitate this so we can show that that's really not God that's doing that. We have the same power as God. It's the same word used of them. In the Old Testament, God warned his people against consulting mediums and necromancers and others who practice sorcery. But why? Why would that be a bad thing? And why is it included, I'm not including it in this category of a perversion of worship? Well, sorcery, specifically the summoning of the dead, which is what sorcery often is, it reveals a lack of trust in the revelation of God. In other words, it's trying to get more information than God in his providence has chosen to reveal. Or it's simply trying to bypass God altogether as if he doesn't exist. Or as if he's not powerful enough to tell us what we need to know. It's trying to get around God in some way, shape, or form. Isaiah chapter 8 verse 19, God says this, And when they say to you, inquire of the mediums and the necromancers who chirp and mutter, should not a people inquire of their God? Should they inquire of the dead on behalf of the living? 
And God goes on to associate in Isaiah, he associates this sorcery, this witchcraft, with a rejection of his teaching and testimony. Those are the two words that he uses to describe what is being rejected. It's a rejection of God's teaching. It's a rejection of his testimony. It's a rejection of the revelation of God of himself. It's trying to get around God. And any failure to acknowledge God for who he is is a failure to worship him properly. Thus, it's a perversion of worship, idolatry, and sorcery. The third category of sin that we see here is a perversion of fellowship. And this is the largest category here. Eight words, eight words that fall into this category. I think there's a reason this is the largest category. This is really the heart of what Paul is trying to warn the Galatians against because it's probably the thing that they're being tempted with the most. Perversion of fellowship. And by fellowship, I don't mean sitting down and eating fried chicken together, okay? Sometimes fellowship happens when we eat together. But eating a meal together is not what fellowship is. Fellowship is that, is that incredible union that believers in Christ share with one another, regardless of all of our differences, because we have both, or if there's more than one, uh, more than two, because all of us have, have experienced salvation, and we share that bond with one another. And we help one another grow in our walk with the Lord. That's fellowship. And that's the definition of fellowship according to God's word. And so these next words, these next eight words are a perversion of that. So let's look at these. We have the word enmity, which is basically hatred. The sixth word in this list is hostility. It's, it's the absence of love. It's the absence of love in our lives. And, and from this attitude stems all these other things that we're fixing to see. The other seven things in this category. It starts with enmity in our hearts, hatred. What's one of the things that comes from that? Well, it's the seventh word here, strife or discord or quarreling. All those words are proper translations of this Greek word. It's when we quarrel with one another. It's when we have, have unhealthy arguments. It's a lack of peace in our relationships. And Paul uses this word nine times in his letter in reference to relationships in the church. Not in just in this, this letter, but nine times throughout his letters in the New Testament. Uh, I'm pretty sure that would tell us that strife and discord was a prominent problem in the churches in Paul's day. Unfortunately, I would say many churches today, not much has changed. Satan wants us to argue and bicker with one another because it doesn't reflect the glory of God. And this doesn't mean that in the church we'll always agree on everything. It doesn't mean that we won't have disagreements. It just means that there's no place in the church for sinful arguing and quarreling. The next word that falls in this category of a perversion of fellowship is jealousy. Jealousy is literally the word zeal. Now that can be a good thing. This is a word that could be a good thing. If we're zealous for the right thing, that's good. In fact, God himself is described as jealous. Over us. He's jealous for his glory. If we're zealous for the right thing, that's good. But in a, in a list of sins, we know that Paul is using this word as, as something that's not good. And so this word, this jealousy or zealousness, is bad if you're, if you're zealous in your resentment of someone else. If you're enthusiastic about how much you don't like somebody else. Paul says that's no place in the community of believers. The next, next word we see is translated fits of anger or fits of rage or outbursts of anger. Now, again, this word could be good. This could be a good thing. In fact, in the Bible, it's used of God. 
when God, in his holy, righteous anger, destroys sin and punishes sinners, that's a good thing. The problem is, we're not righteous in all of our anger. Most of the time, our anger, when it manifests itself in us, is not a it's not a righteous, holy anger. It's a selfish, self-serving kind of anger. Our wrath and anger most often expresses itself sinfully. So this thing, this, this fits of rage or fits of anger would include things like slam the door because you're mad at somebody. Or you throw stuff around. I remember going to my room when I was a kid. Man, I used to throw stuff all over the place. I'd get mad. I'd, I'd, I'd close the door and I'd just start slinging stuff. Um, terrible. It's an out, outburst of, of, of anger and rage. It would include destroying other people's property. Sometimes that's how people are expressing their anger and they destroy something that belongs to somebody else. It would be verbal abuse. We yell and scream at somebody. We call them names. We speak in a way that tears them down. It's fits of anger. It would include physical abuse. When in our anger we literally physically hurt someone. So often, we excuse this kind of behavior as, it's just my personality. I just have a short fuse. I want to tell you something. The Bible says it's sin. It's not just your personality. It's not just, well, I just have a short fuse. Can I tell you something? Every one of us naturally sins because we are born with a sin nature. So that's just what happens when I get mad. Yeah, well, guess what? Sin just happens inside of sinners. But it doesn't mean it's right. God has rescued us from that sin to redeem us from it. So we don't have an excuse to live in our old manner of life. The tenth word we see in this list, still under this category of uh, a perversion of fellowship, is rivalries or selfish ambition. That's not talking about the fun rivalries we have when it comes to sports teams and that kind of thing. Of course, those can get out of hand. That's not talking about that. It's talking about when there's a rivalry between you and me. Between you and a brother or sister in Christ. When there's, there, 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 in some way, you're trying to one-up the other person. And, and your actions toward that person are self-promoting. And at the same time, because they're self-promoting, it's tearing the other person down. And Paul says, rivalries and selfish ambitions have no place in the life of a believer and therefore no place in the body of Christ. And then we get to two words, two words as we begin to come to the end of this third category, dissensions and divisions. And these go hand in hand, dissensions and divisions. The word dissensions is... It's used to, to really in the political realm in Paul's day where there was differences over ideologies. And so it would create a rift in between people and different parties, political parties would be formed. And in fact, the same word is also used in regard to false teaching in the Bible. And Paul probably very intentionally used this word dissensions because false teaching was coming into the church at Galatia. And if the Galatians weren't careful, this false teaching would divide them. It would create dissensions that would lead to divisions. Paul used the same word in Romans chapter 16, verse 17 to say, I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause division and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine you have been taught. Avoid them. Dissensions come in and then it creates these divisions in us. That's the twelfth word in this passage. 
and this list of sins. And this refers to those parties that have been separated because of disagreements. You know, that can happen in the church. Again, it could be connected with this false teaching, but there are all sorts of things that could drive a wedge in between our relationships with one another in the church. And the result would be groups forming that are opposed to one another, that are rivals against one another. Listen, we're different people. I don't know if you know this, but when you walked in today, you didn't walk into a building that was full of people just like you. We're different than one another. We have different likes and dislikes. We have different personalities. We have different backgrounds. We have different gifts. Even as Christians, we're different. But regardless of the differences that we may have, we have the most important thing that anybody could ever have in common with one another. Jesus Christ has rescued us from our sins. If you've placed your faith and trust in Jesus, you belong to Him. Regardless of our differences, we share the gospel of Jesus Christ in common with one another, and that unites us despite any differences that we may Remembering the gospel, learning about the gospel, talking about the gospel, singing about the gospel, sitting under the preaching and the teaching of the gospel, helping one another live out the gospel in our lives will protect us from these unhealthy, ungodly dissensions and divisions. We are on the same team. The last word in this category of, of uh, perversions of fellowship is the word envy. And it goes right along with these other vices. F.F. Bruce said that envy is the grudging spirit that cannot bear to contemplate someone else's prosperity. It's the grudging spirit inside of us that cannot bear to contemplate, to think about someone else's prosperity. Where I'm jealous, I'm envious of the good in that person's heart or in that person's life. Now, these eight sins are a perversion of the fellowship we're to share with one another as believers and therefore they have no place in church. And then we get to the last category, and there's two words in this last category, and I'm going to call this a perversion of sense. Sense, S-E-N-S-E. Okay, not money sense, but sense, the sense that's in our mind. Okay, and the sense that God has given us. God has given us a mind, and he wants us to use it for his purposes. But in our sin, we want to pervert our mind. He uses two words here to talk about this perversion of sense. Drunkenness and orgies or revelry. Drunkenness was common in Roman life here in the time when Paul was writing this. And it's forbidden all throughout Scripture. Drunkenness is a destruction, even if temporarily, of our God-given mental capacity that often leads a person to self-harm or leads a person into harming others. In fact, if you think about it, it's, it's directly associated with lots of the things that have just come before Right? Drunkenness also often leads to sexual immorality. Or drunkenness often leads to fits of rage in our lives. But it's a perversion of the mind, of the sense that God has given us. He's given us sense and He's given us the ability to use our mind in such a way that we make choices that bring honor and glory to Him. Drunkenness is a perversion of that. And orgies is simply the wild living that is often associated with drunkenness. It's a long list, right? Guess what Paul says at the end of the list? 
and things like these. In other words, we could go on and on and on and on and on, listing works of the flesh, listing the sin that manifests itself in our lives apart from God's Spirit inside of us. We're guilty of it. We're guilty. And Paul gave the works, and then he gives the warning. He says, I warn you, in verse 21, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Listen closely to me. Listen closely. This is what Paul is not saying. That only perfect people get to be citizens of God's kingdom. That's not what Paul is saying. He's already told us how sinners can be justified. We're justified by God's grace through faith in Jesus Christ. Paul knows that we're sinners. What he's referring to here is a lifestyle that is not in keeping with someone who is filled with the presence of God. If God lives in us, there's no way that our lives will be characterized by these things. So what happens if as we walk through this, We feel guilty of one or two or more or all of these things. Well, if you've never trusted in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, your response needs to be repentance and faith in Jesus and He will rescue you from this. And He will forgive you. And you will be welcomed into His kingdom. If you are a Christian here today, and the Spirit is speaking into your heart and life and saying, you're guilty of this. Even this week, maybe even already today, you're guilty. Our response is not one of despair, but we cast ourselves once again upon the grace and mercy of God. We cast ourselves once again upon the God who loved us enough to rescue us out of our sin. But notice what Paul is saying in a bigger picture He's saying that if you and I are walking by the Spirit, sin will be being destroyed inside of us. If sin is not being destroyed inside of you, it's not that you're not saying you should be living a perfect life, though that's what we strive to do. But when we find that we have sinned, if that sin is not then being destroyed in us, then we are not walking by the Spirit. What is the Spirit of God doing in you today? It is destroying the works of the flesh. You know what the Spirit of God is up to in my life today? The Spirit of God is 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 up to destroying the works of the flesh. Our lives will be characterized by a constant destruction of sin in our lives. And we cooperate with the Spirit in that. I was reading some this week and I was reading about a lady. Um, Her name is... I always pronounce her name wrong, so I apologize to her, though she'll probably never hear this. But Rosaria, I don't think that's how you say her name, but um, I can't. My wife tried to help me practice saying her name, and I, I can't get it. So, uh, but her last name is Butterfield, and 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 she's she's a lady who's a professor up in uh, up in New York, and uh, was and a professor up there, and uh, she was uh, practicing and promoting homosexuality in her lifestyle, and very strong advocate of it before coming to faith in Jesus Christ. And struck me something that she wrote after coming to faith in Christ. Listen to what she says. What conversion did change immediately was my mind. 
Indeed, I was not converted out of homosexuality. I was converted out of unbelief. She's not saying that she didn't cease to be a homosexual, cease to sin. She's saying that the main thing that God saved her from was unbelief in God that then led to sin in her life. So God saved her from that unbelief. And then because now she believes in Christ, her life looks different. She says, suddenly my mind was on fire for the Bible, and I could not read enough of it or enough about it. During this time, I experienced a small taste of what it means when David declares in Psalm 27.1, The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? Notice what she says in light of that verse. She says, the light that the gospel gave me was ruinous. Another word for destruction. It was destructive, she says. Now, often we don't think about the gospel that way as being destructive. We think about it as giving us life. But before it gives us life, it has to destroy something in us. She goes on to say this. It ruined me for the life I love. She's talking about her past lifestyle of sin that she was so in love with. She said, it ruined me for that life that I love. The Lord's light illumined my sin through the law and illumined my hope through Jesus and the gospel. The gospel destroyed me before the Lord built me back up. Wow. The gospel destroyed me. It ruined me. And I would add to that that the gospel, the spirit in us, continues to ruin us. Continues to destroy us. That part of us that's still tempted by the works of the flesh. That part of us that still sometimes gives in to those temptations of the works of the flesh. The gospel in us, the spirit in us, continues to destroy our old self on a day-to-day basis. As sin is continually exposed in our lives. By the way, I kind of knew this was going to happen, so y'all hang in with me. This is the only point we're going to get to today, okay? Um, God's just really impressed this upon my heart over the past several weeks. Because we don't like to talk about sin, and we don't like to call sin, sin. And so I wanted to camp out on this for just a little bit, and I really wasn't sure how long it would take. And so point number one is our only point for today, okay? Um, but I want to I want us to think about this in our own lives for just a moment before we close. Okay, I want us to think about this, Christian, Christian. You who call yourself a Christian, has your past life, the life before you were redeemed, has it been ruined? And any time that past life wants to crop up in your life. Those weeds of your, of your sinful flesh want to sprout out of the ground. Is there destruction of those things that is taking place by the power of God's Spirit in you and you working in cooperation with the Holy Spirit, submitting to His will in your life? It's an important question. Because if it hasn't, if your old self has not been destroyed and is not continually being destroyed, 
and your life today doesn't look any different than your life back then, I would argue perhaps you don't have the Spirit of God in you. Because our lives will look different on the outside when God lives inside of us. Now maybe, maybe you say, my life does look different than it used to. And I can see how God has been destroying sin in my life. But man, there's still sin that (laughs) that hangs around. And I still find within my heart this struggle against sin. And sometimes I do give in to the temptations of the flesh. And I would say, welcome to the life of a believer. Where there's this constant battle inside of us. Where we strive for holiness. And yet so often, just as Lori sang about, almost brought tears to my eyes. I was thinking about my own life. So often as believers, we fall short of God's glory. And say, what do I do in that sense where I know that I'm saved? I know that God has been working to get rid of sin in my life. But, man, sometimes I mess up. And I think we do what John tells us in his letter. John chapter 1, verse 9 says that if, if we will confess our sins, that he, God, is faithful and just to forgive us our sins, and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So if I find within my heart an enmity has led to quarreling with a brother or sister in Christ, if I find within my heart is, uh, some, some perversion of God's design for sex that has, has led to sexual immorality in my life, then what is my response to that? What is my response? It's not just to say, well, there's no hope. No, there is hope because the Spirit lives in us. And so I I get on my knees before God and I repent and I'm broken of that. And I say, God, take this away from me and help me. Forgive me and help me destroy the sin in my life. Not because I can do it, but because your Spirit, which is powerful over sin, lives in me. We cry out to God for His mercy and His grace. And you know what we find? A God who is full of mercy and grace. Who will forgive us. We are walking by the Spirit. Sin will be being destroyed. Puritan John Owen said this. He referred to the destruction of the works of the flesh as the as mortification of sin. That's a fancy word for putting to death. To mortify something is to put it to death. Okay? The destruction of sin. And this is what he said. Do you mortify? That is, do you put to death? Do you make it your daily work? Be always at it whilst you live. Cease not a day from this work. Be killing sin, or it will be killing you. And the beauty of that, and he goes on to say, it's not just our power. Yes, we cooperate with the Spirit. We spend time in God's Word. We cry out to Him in prayer. 
we, we share our burdens with our brothers and sisters in Christ and get them to pray for us and hold us accountable. We, 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 we do the work of being faithful in, in our church participation so that we're hearing God's Word preached and taught to us. That's how we cooperate with the Spirit. But at the end of the day, thank God it's His Spirit in us that helps us overcome the desires of What I want for you as an individual Christian, for me, and for us as a church is for the watching world not to see people who are perfect. So that's what we strive for. But this side of heaven, we will never be perfect. But what the watching world needs to see in our lives as individuals and in our life as a church is a community where sin is being called sin and is being put to death. Not by our own abilities, but by the grace of God. Is there something that you need to repent of today? Maybe something we talked about, maybe something else. Maybe you say, you know what, this, this weed of sin is cropping up in my life. And before it grows anymore, I need to get on my face before God and cry out for His mercy, His forgiveness, and His help in overcoming sin. He will forgive and He will help you today. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, you more than anyone else know that I'm not worthy to stand up and exhort other people to allow your spirit to expose sin in them and to repent. Father, because you know that there's still so so much that I struggle with in, in the flesh. Father, it's the call for every one of us to cooperate with your Spirit in putting to work the deeds of the flesh, these perversions of your good word, these sins. Father, it's the call for every one of us to get on our face before you and cry out for your mercy and your grace. And Father, if there's someone here today who is living in a lifestyle of sin, has never been set free from that sin. Father, I pray that for the very first time in their life today, they would cry out to you for salvation. That you would rescue them. Free them from sin. By your grace and mercy, through the blood of Jesus Christ. Father, for any Christian here today, who longs to be like Jesus, but knows that they still fall short of your glory. And Father, if you've convicted any of us as Christians of sin in our lives today, Father, help us not to walk out of here with hard hearts. Father, there's no place in your kingdom for sin. 
And by your grace, you are getting rid of sin in our lives and making us fit for your kingdom. Father, help us to participate in that. Father, our job is to repent, to turn from sin when you convict us, to be honest about it, to admit it before you. And then by your power in us, put to death that sin on a day-to-day basis. Father, I, I don't really know why, but I just know that you've laid this, this passage on my heart. And Father, I, I just long for us to be a community. This church to be a, a gospel community where sin is is constantly being eradicated. And the world can see that we hate sin. And when we find sin in us, we try to get rid of it by your help, by your grace, as quick as we can. And we don't continue to live in it. Father, I don't know what you're doing in hearts this morning. God, I just pray that that we would be obedient to your word. Father, ruin us. Ruin, destroy the sin in us. No matter how much it hurts. Father, because until those weeds get pulled up, Father, we're not going to be able to produce the fruit that you call us to produce. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.